You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior research fellow and associate director of academic and student programs at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I'm here with Pete Betke, a professor of economics and a professor of philosophy at George Mason University. He's also the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics and the Vice President of Research at the Mercatus Center at GMU. His most recent book is Living Economics, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Pete. It's wonderful to be here with you, Jamie. So we want to talk today about the Bloomington School of Institutional Analysis and Public Choice and the work of Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom. Can you just tell me a little bit about what that is? Oh, well, uh, Vincent Ostrom uh, was a professor at UCLA. Um, he uh, also worked in the Alaskan Constitution, he, but he was involved in particularly in a project having to do with water rights in California, and he worked at a sort of a water resource center at UCLA, and Eleanor Ostrom, uh, who uh, was a graduate student at that time, uh, she uh, worked her dissertation on uh, uh, water rights in California. Um, actually, it's very relevant, because think about what's going on in California today, yeah, no, uh, yeah. and uh, both of them, and they moved to the uh, University of Indiana, Indiana University, in the 1960s, early 1960s. And they uh, were part of a broad program in political science that was going on at that time internationally on applying basically methodological individualism or what we might call today rational choice modeling uh, to the area of politics, um, which previous to that had been dominantly done in economics. And uh, so Jim Buchanan at the University of Virginia um, and Gordon Tullock, his colleague, had published The Calculus of Consent. Um, in 1963, is that correct, or 62? And uh, then they uh, started a, a, a group called the Committee on Non-Market Decision-Making. And Vincent was one of those original members of that, which became the Public Choice Society. And both Vincent and Lynn had served as president at respective times at a Public Choice Society, as well as uh, earning rather uh, large accolades um, in the field of political science more generally. And uh, then uh, Lynn, of course, was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, so that's sort of a quick history of their accolades. Now their content of their ideas is Vincent very much wanted to, both Vincent and Eleanor were very enthralled with the Tocquevillian idea of self-governing democracies. And what are the institutions and also capacities of citizens required to be self-governing uh, citizens. And so they started a project, and it was called the Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis. And they, one of the big ideas in Vincent's entire body of work is the connection between words and deeds, okay? And so words really, really mattered uh, for Vincent and for Eleanor. And so the choice of the term workshop has a meaning to it that it doesn't have in other ordinary sort of ideas. A lot of schools say, oh, we're going to go to the workshop and, you know, we do seminars or whatever. But they chose as the name of their center, 
the workshop. And the reason for that was that they believed that young scholars were entering into an apprenticeship in the same way that you enter into an apprenticeship with a master craftsman. Eventually, their approach became known as the Institutional Analysis of Development, or the Bloomington School for Institutional Analysis and Development, because the insights that they had about the working of a self-governing democracy then spread to the working of self-governing democracies abroad and, and everywhere and self-sustaining social orders. And you said it all started with this question about water rights. Yeah. So what does self-governance have to do with water rights? So they started by picking examples of where it appeared that um, economic theory strictly understood would, would have to remain silent about how maybe a market mechanism or how voluntary mechanisms could solve the collective action problem. And then they demonstrated how communities, in fact, find rules so they can live better together and while solving these collective action problems. And water rights is a very stark one. But it, 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 to a lot of people on the outside, they think of, of Lynn and they think of collective action problems, commons problems, uh, you know, common pool resource problems. And, uh, and, and, and then they see Vincent doing federalism and constitutions, and they think of them as separate projects, but really they're not. They're one and the same. So part of the reason why Vincent believed in the nature of the compound republic and what the political theory of that was is this sort of Tocquevillian idea of a self-governing society, decentralized society, um, a society of free and responsible individuals. Um, and, and understanding that, you know, the strict dichotomizations that exist in the social sciences don't aid us in thinking through those issues. So it's a fascinating kind of research program historically and contemporaneously or whatever. And so and that's one of the things that's striking about both Vincent and Lynn is that their work, while governed by a very theory, was always grounded with their feet on the ground with real world problems. So they took as their, so they, you know, again, think about that political workshop in political theory and policy analysis. So they were always stuck to the ground to do theorizing rather than having their theorizing be free floating and sort of abstract. So they're in a lot of ways different than John Rawls, for example, when they go to sort of find how are the rules evolved that we can live better together. Um, and realize the gains from social cooperation, or another way to put that is how to realize the gains from, you know, uh, productive specialization and peaceful social cooperation. You know, they were trying to figure out the framework within which that takes place. And one of the workshop's early projects involved Eleanor and a lot of the people that she worked with actually riding around in police cars to yeah. understand better what was happening with the provision of police services in the local community. And... You, you brought up this issue of them wanting to have their feet on the ground. So you see that manifesting right away in the research. Yeah. And I know that's something that you've picked up on as well. So you've incorporated field work into what you do in a variety of ways, and you've emphasized uh, its importance as a method in the social sciences. So can you talk a little bit about how you've used that in your work, why you think it's important? Yeah, well, there's a great paper by these you know, people Lemke and Palagashvili <laughs> and Betke on Lynn and her work on that. So, yes, I mean, everyone should read it. Um, no, the um, so m my involvement with field work and also with the Ostroms, because they're actually contemporaneously, they happened in, at the same time, was uh, has to do with my study of the Soviet system. 
So when I started studying the Soviet economy in the, in the mid-'80s, it was fracturing, but it still existed. So when I started graduate school, Gorbachev wasn't yet in power. But when I finished graduate school, Gorbachev was in power, and he was in the midst of doing what uh, became known as his glasnost, uh, which meant public frankness or public truthness, and then uh, perestroika, which is restructuring of the economic system. And so that happened at the end. But um, when I started studying the Soviet Union, I started studying the, its history and its practice. And the real question there was there was this big disjoint between the way the system was supposed to work in theory and the way that it operated in practice. And this was one of the real great strengths of what Lynn was doing with her work on common pool resources, is studying the di disjoint between the rules in form and the rules in use. So the rules in form um, might not look like they can solve like the collective action problem, but the rules in use actually find ways to work around the difficulties and come to a solution. Now, I should point out that in Lynn's work, what she believed that you should do is what's called multiple methods methodology. And so one of her really strong essays in this is an essay in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, which is um, her studying uh, forestry uh, patterns. And so she, uh, I'm not going to remember the exact title, but basically the approach was she relied on satellite imagery, she relied on field work, and then she also did computer simulations, you know, or, uh, and, and so it was like this in the lab, in the field, from the sky, right, kind of idea. And her idea was that each of us as social scientists must become a specialist in one of these kind of methodologies. And then what we should do is realize gains from trade with other social sciences. So she was a collaborative researcher. So if you look at her uh, research, she has lots of co-authorships and lots of you know, projects that she led with different people. And she was always doing that kind of, kind of work. And, uh, and that's because she was always looking for these gains from trade. They did that a lot with the workshop in Indiana where they constantly had visitors over and, uh, and new blood constantly. One of the really great things about the, uh, the workshop is that the university there, at, at the buildings, they actually have like a house for the people that come and visit and they're right there, you know. And so it's a really, um, she built that community up, her and Vincent, and uh, it's just an amazing shop. And so I think this multiple methods methodology thing is really strong. And the problem is, is that the least respected of those is field work. And that's what needs to be always the grounding. Because if you want to understand this issue of the de facto rules or the rules in use, you only have access to that if you go into the field and you ask people, you know, how they are solving their problems and you pay respect. So one way to think about Eleanor's work as well is that she had tremendous faith in the power of the local people to solve problems themselves rather than have a one-size-fits-all problem from, you know, a bureaucracy coming down, whether or not it's in a, a municipality or whether or not it's in a federal government or whether or not it's in an international agency. It's in the power of the people to solve their problems themselves that we see the emergence of self-governing societies, which is what she was trying to understand and to appreciate as the nature of, of uh, sort of what a true democracy, democratic system is. 
One of the things that I find so impressive about Eleanor and Vincent and all of their colleagues at the workshop is there's just this incredible degree of consistency over 80, over 80 years that they're working together on these yeah. questions. They're, you know, starting with Tocqueville and these questions about self-governance and how it is people come together to solve problems on their own, recognizing that even local governments don't just come out of nowhere. They're created by people at some point for some purpose, and they're trying to understand how this process works, and it just drives every single question, and it dr and even the fact that they're starting with the question and moving from there to the method, which lets them use this multiple methods approach that is so productive. Um, you know, not all political science, not all economics and social science is like this, where it has this question-driven consistency. Yeah. Um, so what do you think is missing from people who fail to, or not missing from the people, but missing from their answers when they yeah. fail to recognize the importance and they fail to recognize the importance of this approach? Well, I think there's, um, there's a couple things. One of the first things is just a sheer methodological missing box. So the way in which the social sciences in the post-World War II era has been done is that um, you can think of, of uh, it as uh, divide in the following sense, thin theory or thick theory. And you can think about empirics as either being clean empirics or dirty empirics, okay? So if I have a thin theory, that means I have like a kind of a notion of rational agents, you know, which is sort of like the way economists think about things. If I have a thick theory, it's like a lots and lots of parts on the explanatory part, right? And you think about that, that's kind of you know, um, uh, you know, sort of anthropology or whatever, right? Sort of a very thick description kind of versus thin description. And of course, you know, in our world, we're in this kind of, we have this divide here because if we're all in this thin model, then there's no real reason for us to ever leave anything but our computers because we're all the same, whether or not we're in sub-Saharan Africa or whether or not we're in Hawaii, you know, basically man is the same across these different regions. And so, you know, why are we studying anything different? Like, you know, they're just going to be these rational agents with imbued with various cognitive capacities and blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, if a really thick description, every universe, every island is its own universe, right? So I study the, the Balinese and cockfight you know, in depth and detail for this particular time and this particular place, and that's all I can know, right? There's nothing to translate. So here's the dilemma. <clears throat> if we were all the same, then there's no unique differences that we could glean from history, travel, whatever. On the other hand, if we're all so different, we're completely alien, so we couldn't understand one another either. If I met a person from sub-Saharan Africa, I wouldn't even understand who they were because I just have my own universe. They have their own language game. But somewhere, social explanation exists somewhere in between those two. All right? So how do we think about this? So we most often think that it's a choice between either sound, hardcore economics or soft, fuzzy anthropology history or something, right? Well, what about this other box? This other box where you have a thin theory, which enables us to see universality across the cases, but you fill in the cases with all of the unique institutional details that are involved. And that's how you get comparative political economy. And that's what, that's what the Ostroms were champions of. And that's why when you look at like her book, Governing the Commons, it had such a big impact because what she showed was not only across um, you know, countries, 
but also over time. So she has practices from Japan to Switzerland, right, and, and all these different areas about how they dealt with their common pool resource problems, lobster pots, you know, all these different examples, but also how they existed over time. So they have certain principles that she wants to draw out, the thin theory of the long and enduring practices that allow for social cooperation to take place. So she paid attention to the details, yet drew the general lessons. And that's a form of social science, which I think we should be champion and getting on board on, because I think that's also, you know, when public choice is in its best, it's, it's sort of recognizing the comparative institutions. When Austrian economics is in its best, it's recognizing contextual nature of knowledge, yet the universal idea of an individual purposiveness and whatnot. Um, and so I think there's this, con we'll, we'll talk about this more, but I think there's this conflation of these programs. But Eleanor really highlights this comparative political economy perspective. And then she does it in a way which highlights the self-governing capacity of individuals. And so one of the real theoretical innovations of the Ostroms was that they, this notion of co-production. It's a very, very simple idea. When you, all of us who are teachers recognize this, when we teach, the students and the experience in that classroom are going to depend on what the students bring to the classroom, not just the teacher, right? If it's just the teacher talking, it's like on the old Peanuts you know, commercial where the peanuts are listening to the adults and they're like, wah, 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 wah. That's, <laughs> right? That's no communication going on. But when you're, when, you know, when you're actually having a really vibrant conversation, it's a giver and a receiver. And actually the giver of the knowledge oftentimes is then becomes the receiver as the, right? And that's what she talks about in co-production. Well, that's true not only for the classroom, but in terms of things like public safety. The other idea that I think besides co-production that's uh, fundamental to, uh, uh, you know, uh, Lynn's work um, is, uh, so again, it's, it has to do with what are these self-governing capacities of the citizenry and that we are, that democracies are fragile, that there are these fragile beasts that can break down for a variety of reasons and that part of what you're trying to do is recognize the, what are the, what are cultivate in citizens, going back to the workshop idea, cultivate in citizen scholars the capacities that are required for people to live in truly self-governing self orders. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for people who want to learn more about this and go further down the road, what book would you recommend as a good primer introduction to Bloomington institutional analysis? Well, there's no better book than one written by myself and Dragos <laughs> Alajika called Challenging Institutional Analysis of Development. But uh, uh, no, I mean, in all seriousness, I think in any of these kind of ideas, the, the, uh, it's a very, very difficult book to read, but it pays tremendous dividends to get through, which is Vincent's book, The Meaning of Democracy and the Vulnerabilities of Democracies. It's a difficult read because as much as I said before that Vincent cared about word and deed, and he really cared about language, um, he is not the most felicitous with the pen. Lynn, on the other hand, is very easy to read. And so in her work, I would suggest Governing the Commons. It's classic. So, you know, read The Governing the Commons. But it would be really useful for young people to read both of those books and see the connection between the two of them. So, like, the way I like to describe Lynn's work is that and Lynn and Vincent, is that they did rational choice theory as if the choosers were human, 
and they did institutional analysis as if history matters. It's exciting stuff. It's, it's a, I mean, it's a fascinating research program. It's this disjoint between the de jure and the de facto is, you know, fundamental to the way we understand. We want to understand how people really behave, not the way that they sort of pretend to behave or people pretend that they behave theoretically. We want to understand we want to use the methods that are appropriate for the questions we're asking. I mean, this is all, multiple method, methodology, multiple methods, methodology goes all the way back to Aristotle. It's simply, you know, Aristotle said you should choose the methods that are appropriate for the questions you want to ask. How we ever thought that there was this one size fits all approach to social science and what that does, it's a methodological straitjacket. And, 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 and today, you know, when I was a kid, the straitjacket was different than the straitjacket today. Straitjacket today is like, you know, big data. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be paying attention to big data or utilizing that information when it comes about, but the idea that it's a be-all and end-all and that's all we should be focusing on. No, you know, what we need to be doing is we need to actually have respect for multiple forms of evidence and then triangulate various different problems and then try to hone in on, you know, solving the issue. So all of us need to like, you know, take a big deep breath and recognize that no one has a red phone to God. You know, I have the truth and, you know, like that. And so we need to like borrow and learn and, and, and continue to learn from each other. And that's kind of another Ostrom big point, which is lifelong learning. You know, you mentioned about the longevity of the research program. One of the things that's most fascinating about that is, is she was constantly learning. You know, she unfortunately passed away at 78 years old. Vincent was in his 90s. Um, but uh, she, you know, um, got uh, pancreatic cancer and died fairly quickly. But at the time when she died, when she was first diagnosed, she was trying to work out a center in human evolution down at, at Arizona State. She's doing her work at U University of, of Indiana. She's working with us in collaboration here, which is more theoretical, you know, conceptual. So more conceptual, more, you know, field and, and, and empirical, and then more computer simulation. She was learning constantly. And she was just always alert to wherever a new argument was from anyone. And one of the most impressive things that I ever saw here was um, soon after she won the Nobel Prize. So Paul and I had written our book before they won the prize. And, and I say before they won the prize, because I really do think of it as a joint project. It's, 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 and she did too. And she did too, yeah. Um, but she, she, you know, she was just an amazing scholar. So I don't want to give any uh, impression that there's anything, you know, she's, she's just standalone, a, a brilliant. But as a person, she um, honored her commitment uh, to come here for a book panel that we had set up on our book. Um, that was before she won the prize, but then she won the prize, okay? And so that was kind of amazing that she did that. But here's something else that was more amazing about that. She spent time with us a whole week here and uh, she met with all the graduate students. She sat down in, in the Mercatus seminar room. We had all our PhD students sit around. And uh, she asked them what they're working on. And they all went through and she listened to every single one of them. This is a Nobel Prize winner in economics. She didn't feel the need to have to tell them what she thought about the world. She wanted to hear from them and what project they were working on and then ways that she thought about maybe improving like what they were doing or, oh, that's an interesting idea. It was phenomenal and it's just the way she is. And she was such a humble and hardworking individual and she never had that kind of 
attitude of like a, a, a like I'm a prima donna, and she then no one around her could have that attitude either because if the smartest bulb in the room doesn't have that attitude, then you can't certainly adopt that attitude. So she was just this fascinating person. She always was learning from every experience that she had. She had a sheer joy of learning, uh, which is uh, uh, contagious to the people around her, curiosity. Just wanted to understand the world around her. And so that's fascinating. And in terms of the broader like liberalism thing, I mentioned earlier about the notion of first the order of liberals. So that's one clue that people should be paying attention to in their work. The second idea um, that's important in that is the Tocquevillian connection, right? So it's like he, he, they had a uh, you know, picture of Tocqueville up on the wall at the, at the workshop. The lecture series called the Tocqueville Lecture Series. There's, there's no connection with Tocqueville and, and IU, right? They, they brought all that. So Tocqueville means something to them, and it's the nature of what self-governing democracies are. Third thing is it's important to remember is that her last public lecture was the Hayek lecture at the IEA. So here's a woman who is stricken with pancreatic cancer, and she has lots of things to get done, lots of things to get done. But she took the time out to give that lecture. That's pretty phenomenal. And that's her last you know, public lecture. So people should pay attention to those kind of clues because they didn't always, they, weren't, they were not in your face people about these issues. But that's an underlying theme that goes all the way through from Vincent's work all the way through to Eleanor's work, which is about this idea of what is the nature of a free society, of a self-governing society. And that's what they cared passionately about. And she has a, in the interviews that Paul um, did that's in our book, um, she's asked to sum up at the end her career. And she says that all of their research and educational efforts are for naught if we don't focus on this issue of that it helped create citizenry that was capable of self-governance. And she says, if, if, if our work doesn't aid in that, then, you know, our work is meaningless. And that's pretty amazing for someone to have that kind of conviction um, in their ideas. And so we try to really work and develop those ideas. And in the best spirit of the Ostroms, you know, we're trying, we, we all have tremendous fondness and very serious, you know, uh, emotional memories of them as people. But what we're trying to do is really work with their ideas. So the development of the co-production idea of the field work that's done in political economy, of the comparative institutional analysis um, that's done, um, those are all these ideas that animate a lot of our, our work and we're trying to live up to that. Thank you for coming in to take the time to talk to me today, Pete. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.